quoted passages in all the Bible, the love chapter. And while it does describe with great detail and with incredible accuracy what agape love looks like, and we know that agape love is divine love, it's not brotherly love, it's not erotic love, it's the highest, the purest divine love. While Paul will do that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is also describing for us the context with which our spiritual gifts are to be lived out in service to Him in the church for the edification of His church. And so in our study thus far about spiritual gifts, we've seen there are many gifts, many ministries, many effects, but there is one Spirit, one Lord, and one God. The body of Christ, like a human body, has many parts, but it is united in this incredible Diversity, the body of Christ like a human body, is the function with an understanding of interdependency upon the various parts of the body working together, not each part working independently of the other. So the church in Corinth was divided for many reasons as we have studied in these many, many chapters. And here, in their lack of understanding and application of spiritual gifts, there has been an intensification or a magnification that has added to this feeling of division that they are experiencing when they gather for worship. So the problem is that they have emphasized almost singularly the gift of tongues over all other gifts, and those that possess this gift felt superior to others, and those that didn't possess this gift were made to feel inferior or made to feel as if they were an excuse me an insignificant part of the body. So here in chapter 13, Paul is describing for us the supremacy of love. And by way of review, we're going to read these first three examples and look at the exaggerated examples of how Paul wants to emphasize the supremacy of love over all of the gifts that God has given to the church. He says, beginning in verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love... I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So Paul has set against spiritual gifts the supremacy of love, and in doing so, he is going to describe why love is superior to all of the other gifts. And in these verses we're going to begin looking at today, he is going to describe the qualities of love, and he will break it down into smaller parts so that we may easily understand and apply its full and rich meaning to our lives. Now, I know when we talk about love, our eyes tend to glaze over. Yeah, we're talking about love again. I know, I get the idea. I remember when I was a young Christian, one of my closest friends who was helping to disciple me in the Lord gave me a book, and the book was titled, The Mark of a Christian Love. And I'd been a Christian maybe six or eight months, and I go, yeah, I get that. And I set the book aside, and I don't think I ever really ever picked it up and read it. 
And that's kind of the way we respond when we hear messages about love. We have a theoretical or an academic understanding of love, but we don't ever really meditate on it or break it down in a digestible piece of information so that it has the kind of impact that God desires it to have in our everyday lives. Now, Paul is going to describe love, and we are going to look at 15 verbs that describe the spectrum of love. 15 verbs that describe the spectrum of love. These aren't 15 different expressions of love, but 15 characteristics that describe what love is. So as I thought about this and tried to give, come up with an illustration or example to give to that, I really didn't do a very good job at that, but I thought about describing an orange. And we could describe its color. And we could describe its fragrance. We could describe the sweet taste. We could describe the, the cellular wrapping of the pulp and the juice and all that. And we're not describing different kinds of oranges were simply describing the characteristics of a singular orange. And this is what Paul does, is he describes 15 characteristics of a singular expression of love in the lives of God's children. Each word gives a facet or a property of what agape love looks like as it's being lived out in the lives of Christians. Now, similarly, we read, for example, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, a description of what the singular fruit of the Spirit is. There are not nine fruits, plural, of the Spirit, but a singular fruit that is, that is described by nine facets of the Spirit's work in us. So there's some overlap between the fruit of the Spirit and how Paul defines agape love. So the fruit singular of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul's not describing nine fruits of the Spirit. He's describing a singular fruit that has these many different characteristics in it. Now, what is incredibly interesting about this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today is that unlike many English translations, which add adjectives to these descriptions, the Greek only uses a singular verb for each of these descriptions. They do not focus on what love is so much as on what love does or what love does not do. Agape love is not passive or abstract. It is not theoretical, nor is it academic. It is active. So it's important to remember that love is not a spiritual gift, but it is a many-faceted Christian virtue that the Spirit works out in our life as we live in submission to Him. So we're going to begin today, and we're going to look at these seven, excuse me, these 15 qualities. I'm sorry, we're not even going to get 15. Um, we're going to read verses 4 through 7. We're not going to get through with verses 6 and 7. <laughs> 
um, it's just too much there. So we're going to read verses uh, 4 through 7 as a, as a singular idea about the qualities of love. But then we're only going to look at verses 4 and 5. So read along with me in your Bible. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So as we continue in our outline, we're looking now at number two under Roman numeral five, and that is the qualities of love. And we're going to begin with letter A, love is patient. Now, while some may consider patience to be a passive trait, it is actually active because in patience we choose not to do something. Think about that. When you grow impatient with someone or something, you usually do something as a result of the lack of patience. You might raise your voice. You might shake your finger. You might stomp on the accelerator. You might violently swing your cart into another checkout lane because that person has to be the slowest cashier the world has ever known. Patience is not passive. It is active because we choose not to do something. Patience is almost always used in the Bible to describe an action towards people not circumstances and not events the greek word of this excuse me the greek root of this word is the word that we would often read in our bibles and that is the word long suffering patience is the ability listen to this patience is the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over again, and yet not be angry or upset. How well are you doing in the area of patience? (laughs) You got any kids? You got any neighbors? You got any co-workers? Clearly, this description of patience describes the long-suffering of God. Thinking about this, to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over again and yet not be upset or angry. We would read this in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The long-suffering of God and the lives of His children is is designed to bring about repentance over our wrongdoing. So in the same way God has been patient with us, we are to exhibit patience towards one another being inconvenienced or taken advantage of over and over without being upset or angry. Imagine how much stronger, how much more unified the church would be if we exhibited agape-type patience towards each other. 
The same kind of patience that God exhibits towards each one of us. Let me ask you this question. We prayed about this in our large group prayer gathering last week. Thinking about the patience of God. What if God measured patience out to us in the same way we measure our patience to other people? There will be a whole lot more of Ananias and Sapphira experience in the church today than there was in the New Testament because God is patient towards us, desiring that we come to repentance. Let her be. Love is kind. Just as patience will absorb anything from others, kindness will give anything to others, even those we don't necessarily like all that much. I've heard people say this, and I scratch my head. I get it, but I, you know, I still scratch my head. Well, you know, I love him, but I really don't like him. I mean, what does that really mean? What does it really mean when someone says, well, I love you in the Lord, but buddy, I don't like you. I don't want to spend any time with you. I don't want to hang out with you. Patience will absorb anything from others. Kindness will give anything to others, even those we don't like so much. Being kind is the counterpart of being patient. To be kind means to be useful, serving, and gracious. It is an act of goodwill towards others. Again, love is active. It is not passive. It not only feels generous, it is generous. It not only desires others' welfare, but works for others' welfare. When Jesus commanded His disciples, which would include us today, to love their enemies, think about that, Jesus said, love your enemies. He did not simply mean to feel kindly about them, but He indicated that we are to be kind to them. Well, you know, God, I don't don't necessarily like that individual, and I'm not going to pray for hellfire and brimstone to fall down upon them. But you know, I'm not going to go out of my way to acknowledge them or help them or assist them or do anything for them. I'm not going to go out of my way towards this enemy of mine. Now, I'll be very honest with you. I've been a Christian more than 30 years. Gosh, almost 40 years now. I still don't know how you do this. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. What? Wait a minute, what? Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, I've never been sued, but I don't know that I would lay down and say, hey, you want to take my house? Go ahead, take my 401k. Take take all the money I got. Take it all. If you're going to make me do something, I'll be happy to do that. In fact, I'm going to go twice as far as you want to make me. Why? Because I want to show kindness to you. It's agape love. God is the perfect example of kindness even towards His enemies. When was the last time you considered the reality that you were once an enemy of God? Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... 
Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You and I stood before God and said, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I'm going to live my life the way I desire. And you can't stop me. Even when we had that posture and attitude in our heart, God was saying, I love you. And I'm going to be patient towards you. And I'm going to show kindness to you. And I'm going to send my my one and only son to die for you so that He can present you to me as my child. No No longer alienated. No longer hostile. No longer an enemy of God. This is what God has done for us. For the Corinthians, kindness meant giving up their selfish, jealous, spiteful, and proud attitudes towards those they worshipped with and instead adopting the spirit of loving kindness towards those that they thought so poorly of. Letter C. Love is not jealous. Now this is the first of eight negative descriptions of love or what love is not. And each of these is probably used as an example of how the Corinthians were acting when Paul wrote the letter and they probably describe how Christians commonly act within the church towards one another. So love and jealousy are mutually exclusive, and that means where one is, the other cannot be. Kind of like light and darkness. Wherever there is light, darkness cannot exist. The root word for jealousy here is to have a strong desire. It is is the term that we get for zeal, and it can be used both positively and negatively. In Scripture, so here in this instance, it is used negatively. In fact, this is a very similar phrase to what Paul said at the close of chapter twelve, and he, where he says, <clears throat> "Excuse me," where Paul says, "You earnestly desire the greater gifts." So this is an example of where it is used negatively. Envy is a close relative of jealousy. Jealousy or envy has two forms. One form says, I want what someone else has. If they have a better car than I do, then I want what they have. If they are praised for something that they've done well, then I want that same kind of praise or even more. That sort of jealousy is bad because it really erodes our love for other people. But there is a worse kind of jealousy. And this kind says, I wish they didn't even have what they have. It goes a step beyond wanting what they have, but it is wishing that they didn't have what they actually possess. It is actually desiring evil for someone else because they have something that we don't have and we want it zealously. 
We earnestly desire having what someone else has, and that's the context that Paul began chapter 13 in, and that was you earnestly desire the greater gifts. Let me show you a more excellent way. What is the excellent way? It is the way of love. The Corinthians were plagued with jealousy over spiritual gifts, and rather than praising God for the gifts of others, they cursed the one that possessed that give. Imagine how divisive and destructive relationships within the church would be when people had animosity towards someone else because they possessed a gift that they thought was more desirable or more important in the life of the church and then wished that you didn't even have that gift. When love sees someone who is popular or successful or beautiful or talented or spiritually gifted, it is glad for them, never jealous or envious, and benefits from however they might from the individual who has these desirable characteristics that can be said or are true about them. Letter D, love does not brag. Again, this likely highlights highlights one of the many negative Corinthian behaviors. This is the only place in all of the New Testament that this word is used, and it means to talk conceitedly. Bragging is the other side of jealousy. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. Jealousy puts others down. Bragging builds us up. It is ironic that as much as most of us dislike bragging in others, we are generally inclined to brag about ourselves. (laughs) Let me show you my grandchildren. Have you seen my grandchildren recently? This is Joey. Joey is first in his class at such and such a school, and he's going to go on to study engineering. And he's got some of the Fortune 500 companies that are interviewing him because they want him to come and work for them. Don't you wish you had a grandchild like that? That's what bragging does. We don't like, we don't like to hear people talk like that, but our inclination is to talk openly and almost braggadociously about our accomplishments or the mistakes that we've been so spiritual that we've been able to avoid, the success of our business portfolio and our investment strategies and the foolishness of those who are less quote-unquote blessed than we are. So the Corinthian believers were spiritual show-offs constantly vying for public attention. This is why in the chapter ahead we're going to look at how disruptive and how chaotic the worship services actually were. They clamored for the most prestigious 
offices and the most glamorous gifts, and they all wanted to talk at once, at once, especially when somebody was speaking in some kind of an unknown language, an ecstatic utterance. And it is likely that there was a competitive spirit that was taking place, and the result of that is that most of their tongue speaking was actually counterfeit, but their bragging about it was genuine. So if you were to stand up and give some kind of a praise to the Lord in some kind of a tongue or language that no one understood before they can even finish, you would jump to your seat and you would speak even more loudly than they were because your prophetic utterance was more important and more special. And so chaos ensued in the worship services and there was a lack of order. They cared nothing for harmony or order or fellowship or edification of the brethren or anything else worthwhile. They only cared for flaunting themselves so that they would feel good about themselves. And the flip side of that is others would feel poorly about themselves. The greatest example of someone who was not a braggart was Jesus himself. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we are saved by grace, spiritually gifted by grace, and empowered by the Spirit, for spiritual good, then what can we really brag about? Only God. Yeah, we are bragging about God. We're bragging about ourselves. We're bragging about what God has made possible through His gracious impartation of the Holy Spirit, through His gracious opportunity for us to serve Him, And we say, look at me, aren't I great? Aren't you blessed to know me and be a part of what God is so wondrously doing through me? Aren't you glad to be in my presence? Well, Paul says that is not love. Paul goes on to say in letter E, love is not arrogant. To be arrogant is the twin brother of being proud. The word is sometimes sometimes translated haughty, which we very clearly understand, it carries a clear negative connotation. Paul has already addressed their propensity for being arrogant in the earlier chapters that we've studied together. So in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 8, Paul says this, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, not going beyond what we have taught, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. One against the other. 
For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you do not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. Now, Paul is being incredibly sarcastic and he's showing them the kind of pride and arrogance and braggadocious nature that the Corinthians had. So this practice is now exposed in the usage of their spiritual gifts and their perspective that they had about spiritual gifts being promoted within the body of believers. Everything good that the Corinthians had came from the Lord, and they therefore had no reason to be arrogant about the things that God had given to them. Yet they were puffed up and conceited about their knowledge of doctrine, their spiritual gifts, and the famous teachers that they had, Paul goes on to describe their approach to their carnality, their worldliness, their idolatry, their immorality, even practicing incest and not condemning it, but saying, hey, look at it, look what's going on in our church. Something that was not even practiced amongst the pagans. And so Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 5-2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed, incest, would be removed from your midst. In fact, as we go back and look at chapter 5, it sounded like they were kind of proud that they had this thing going on, something that wasn't going on anywhere else in the city. Look at us. we got incest going on in our church. Man, what a group of people we are. <laughs> yeah, but not the right kind of people. <laughs> Some of the most severe scriptural warnings are centered in dealing with prideful arrogance. Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. That's what God says. Proverbs 16.18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 29.23, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Pride is one of the seven things listed that God hates. Love, by contrast, is not arrogant, but instead, love describes the supremacy, the spectacular nature of God's character. Pride and arrogance breed contention with which the Corinthian church was filled. Love has no part in such things. Arrogance is big-headed, where love is big-hearted. Arrogance is big-headed. Love is big-hearted. Excuse me, letter F. Love is not rude. Beginning verse of part 5. Love does not act unbecomingly. So while not as serious as bragging or arrogance... It is the result of lovelessness. It does not care enough for those it is around to act politely. It cares nothing for the feelings or the sensitivities of others. It would be a modern day description of a bull in a china shop. 
It just barrels its way through without any regard to its surroundings, to the casualties that it might create. It just sticks its shoulders, its elbows out, and it just goes on a rampage because, hey, I'm here, and I'm the real deal. The loveless person is careless, overbearing, and often crude. One of our older Bible translators, William Barclay, translates this verse as, Love does not behave gracelessly. Love is gracious. Graciousness should begin with fellow believers, but it should not end there. Many Christians have forfeited the opportunity to witness to unbelievers by acting rudely towards them because of a habit that they exhibited that was considered to be improper or inappropriate. Let me ask you this question. When you're out and about working or communing or fellowshipping with unbelievers, what do you expect an unbeliever to act like? Are they going to act like an unbeliever or are they going to act like a believer? Well, if you hang around with a group of dogs, what are the dogs going to do? They're going to act like dogs. You can't hang around with a bunch of dogs and expect them to act like cats. They're just not going to do that. So when we're with unbelievers, we can expect that they're going to act like unbelievers. But when we treat them rudely or gracelessly because they exude a a behavior or an attitude that we consider to be inappropriate we forfeit the opportunity to share the gospel with them because we've shaken our self-righteous finger in their face and said, how can you do such a thing? How can you be who you are and do what you do and act like your true self? How can you do such a thing? I don't know. I mean, that's just what I do. I remember when I had preschoolers in my house. I love preschoolers. They're so much fun. But I can also remember getting frustrated because preschoolers don't act like grade schoolers. They're incapable of doing that. They can't do that. Daddy, I want to help make pancakes this morning. Uh, okay, so you put everything in a bowl. What I do, they get the wooden spoon and woof, 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 and it's just everywhere. You mean you can't stir that with any delicacy, with any intentionality? You can't keep the ingredients in the bowl? No. They just can't. So, love is much more than being gracious and considerate, but it is never less. Let me repeat that. Think about this. Love is much more than being gracious and considerate, but it is never less. In fact, sometimes the beginning point of love in the life of an unbeliever is being gracious towards them. To the extent that our living is ungracious and inconsiderate, it is also potentially unloving and unchristian. The self-righteous rudeness of Christians can turn people away from Christ before they've even had a chance to hear you share the gospel with them. This was a significant problem within the church at Corinth. And I can only imagine people walking by their places of worship and shaking their head and saying, Have you heard the stuff that's going on in there? Man, I can't believe it. Letter G, love is not selfish. 
Verse 5 continues and says, does not seek its own. So another hallmark of of Corinthian conduct was selfishness, which is caring nothing for the well-being of others, but primarily being consumed with self. I, I don't know that most of us understand or recognize how deeply and thoroughly selfish we really are. I just don't think we do. In fact, I've done marriage counseling and I've talked about sin and selfishness, how it is a an epidemic problem in every relationship. And I've seen people go, I don't consider myself to be that selfish. Well, that's the problem. You don't understand that you are selfish at your very core and all you want to do is dictate how this person is going to fit your desires, your interests, your needs, your expectations. You give no regard to what they think, what they need, what they want. And they look at you and go, huh? They just don't get it. So if we we have already seen the behavior of the Corinthians was rife with selfishness. When they gathered together for the Lord's Supper, they gave no regard for those that were there that might be hungry. Instead, they got drunk on the wine that was there as a part of this love feast. They emphasized their individual rights over the rights of other people and were willingly suing each other in civil courts over offenses that they had experienced. Here, they focused on using their spiritual gifts only for their own edification and not for the edification of others. This is one of the chief verses in the Bible that helps us recognize just how selfish we are. Philippians 2.4 says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Do you think that Paul was addressing the church in Philippi because they had a problem of primarily looking out for themselves? Yep, that's why. Do you think it's changed since Paul wrote these words to the church at Philippi? Nope, not a bit. It's the same problem today. It's just sugar-wrapped in a different package. But it's all the same. Jesus, again, is the great example of selflessness. Think about this. The Creator of the world, the One who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, comes into the world that He created not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Selflessness. Letter H. Love is not easily provoked. Uh, I missed one out of where you got two for the price of one here. Love is not easily angered, and verse 5 says, is not provoked. This has to do with things done against us that are personally offensive to us. Now, even if you don't consider yourself a sensitive person, this is a time in the message when you figuratively pull your toes back in because you're going to get offended. Nobody likes to get offended, right? Who are you to offend me? <laughs> and this is another part that we don't recognize that is so deeply rooted in our selfishness is that we get easily provoked because someone has done something against us or something that is offensive to us. 
Love does not get angry at others when they say or do something that displeases us or when they prevent us from having our own way. Now let's be honest. How many of you would like to have your own way all the time? I would. I would always like to have the remote. I would always like to have the checkbook. I would always like to have the steering wheel. I would always like to have the choice of the menu. I would always like to have everything exactly the way I prefer. Well, you know what that does in any relationship? It's friction. It's conflict. Why? Because they want everything their way, just like you do. And then it becomes a battle of who's going to win. I'm going to win, and you're going to lose. Well, that's not the way it's going to be. I'm going to win, and you're going to lose. Really? Okay, well, let's see how you can exert your power or influence over me so that you win and I lose. Let's see. Let's go. Come on, let's go. (laughs) This is exactly what happens in our relationships. Love never reacts in self-defense or in retaliation. Being provoked is the other side of seeking one's own way. The person who is intent on having his own way all the time about everything is easily provoked and easily angered. I'll be honest, when I, when I was reading these kinds of things in my study and in my preparation, I was going, man, that's me. That's just me. That's me all day long. You know, when I'm driving down the road and somebody passes me and then cuts in front of me and then wants to stop to make a turn, I get offended by that. It makes me mad. Why could you not slow down and get behind me? Because I want my way. So did they. (laughs) That's the battle. This is what takes place in even the most insignificant parts of our lives and of our relationships. The person who is intent on having his own way is easily provoked and easily angered. Now this does not mean that there is never any anger. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry. And what's the other part of that? But do not sin. Oh, now wait a minute. You took the fun out of it. You made it impossible. I know all about being angry. I just don't get the do not sin part because what am I supposed to do with this anger? Appropriate anger is centered in righteous indignation. Inappropriate anger is centered in me not getting my way in this individual instance. So to be angered by the mistreatment of the unfortunate or by maligning or in contradiction, God's word creates righteous indignation. That is an appropriate anger. And when it's truly righteous, this indignation will never be provoked by someone else, excuse me, by something done against us personally by someone else. Think about this. When Jesus overturned the tables at the money changers, most people will say, see, Jesus got mad. Look what he did. He went in there and turned over the tables and he showed out. He had a temper. He acted out. Wasn't that sin? That's not what Jesus did at all. 
Jesus was filled with righteous indignation. Why? Because the people had turned his father's house into a place of business. So when Jesus saw that, they said, you are mistreating my father's house and I can't allow that to happen. So there's no indication that Jesus was cursing at them or He was taking their things or He was ridiculing them or, or accusing them or damning them. He simply overturned their money, change, their money temples and made it impossible for them to conduct business because they had perverted the purpose of God's house and Jesus was not going to sit idly by and watch that happen. So in every instance where He was personally abused or ridiculed or mistreated, he never defended himself. Thinking about his arrest and his trials, how does the prophet Isaiah describe what Jesus will do? Like a lamb that was led to slaughter, but what? He never said a word. His personal ridicule was not the same as the righteous indignation he felt at God's house being turned into a place of business. So love focuses on the well-being of others, not on the elevation of self. Now, letter I, as you've already seen, love does not keep records. Five, Letter part of five says, does not take into an account a wrong suffered. So the Greek word here is lagazomai, and is a bookkeeping term that means to record in a ledger. So some Christians have an uncanny ability to remember the vast majority of wrongs done to them because they have kept a mental, they've kept a mental ledger of the who, of the what, of the when, and of the where when they were personally wronged. I remember back in 1981, I had done, and that lady, and it still burns me up. Some Christians have a mental ledger of every person that has offended them or hurt them. Now, I'll be honest with you, there's been a handful of instances in my life that are still very difficult to let go of. And I can find myself getting really worked up when I begin to focus and meditate on those things. And I have to intentionally choose to let it go. I just have to let it go. So one of the most amazing characters of love, one of the most amazing characteristics of love, is the ability and the willingness to forgive. This is expressed perfectly by God. Romans 4, 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, what do you believe the omniscient God, what His ledger would look like as it relates to your life individually? Think about it like this. If you had a ledger for every year of your life, how full would it be? How thick would it be? Put them all together. How large of a library would it take for God to actually have on record a ledger of all the wrongs committed against Him? 
Well, blessed is the man who sinned, the Lord will not take into an account. Acts 3.19. Therefore, repent and return. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was not, excuse me, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, not recording them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Acts 3.19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, erased from the ledger, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So in God's heavenly record, the only entry after the names of the redeemed is this. Righteous. Righteous. God has taken a thousand ledgers filled with our offenses against Him and has replaced it all with a single word, righteous. That's what God has done. Christ's righteousness is placed in our ledger and no other ledger exists. That is the sort of record love keeps of wrongs done against it. Now, is that easy to understand? Yeah, it's really easy to understand. Is it really, really difficult to live out? You better believe it is. And we generally do a pretty poor job of it. In love, no wrong is ever recorded for later reference. Love chooses to forgive. Someone once suggested that love does not forgive and forget, but love remembers and still forgives. Lovelessness is careful to keep books, which it reads and rereads, hoping for a chance to get even. Love keeps no books because it has no place for for reliving a past offense. We're going to close with this. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's the standard. That's the standard of the love that we are to extend towards one another, forgiving others as God has forgiven us. Now, I'm with you when I say, well, when they tell me how wrong they've been and how hurt they are, then I'm ready to forgive. That's not what it says right there in Ephesians. We are to forgive as God has forgiven us. So those are some of the 15 characteristics of love that we're going to look at. And i got to tell you, um, it's a lot. And there's a lot more to come. And again, this is the context for how spiritual gifts are to be lived out within the church. I love, therefore I will do. If no one sees it, if no one thanks me for it, if no one pats me on the back, I will still be thrilled to have done it because why? I did it out of love. I didn't did it, didn't do it to be noticed, I didn't do it to get thanked, I didn't do it for any other reason but just because of love. What revolutionized service in the church. I've actually heard people say, Well, I'm never going to do that again because no one thanked me. Oh, well, you didn't do it you didn't do it for the right reason then. Greg said this the other day. We were chatting. Um, he probably doesn't remember it. But uh, Jesus talks about the unrighteousness and they have their just reward. Right? It's an earthly, heavenly reward. 
But we work for what? A heavenly reward. We serve Him for the privilege of standing before Him and hearing Him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and enter into the rest that has been prepared for you. That's what love has done. Father, we thank You for...